Hallelujah. Amen. Father, in this song, our minds are brought forward to the day of accounting and reckoning before your great throne of judgment, where we know that we, along with all of humanity, will one day stand. The difference between the sheep and the goat, the believer and the unbeliever on that day, is that we have a defense, one who stands in our place, and that unto him we appeal for our righteousness and for our safe passage from this life into the presence of the perfect and holy and powerful and just and almighty God. Our defense, the one who stands in our place, the one who gave himself as a propitiation for our sins, the one who shed his blood, stretched out his hands, and allowed them to be nailed to that cruel cross, who allowed his brow to be pierced by thorns and his back to be torn by the whips of his accusers, is Jesus Christ, our Savior, our representative, our Messiah, who stands in our place. And not only, dear Jesus, do we acknowledge that you are our sacrifice, but we also acknowledge you as our high priest and mediator. Because you represent us before the Father, interceding on our behalf, our defense, Lord, our advocate. We, Lord, are encouraged that we stand, Lord, <coughs> worthy in your presence because of the one who stands in our place. As we turn to the Holy Scriptures and read of these powerful truths foreshadowed and prophesied in ages past, I pray that you would deepen our appreciation of all of this, your work throughout history and your work that yet continues and your work that you have called us to walk in and to be faithful and obedient to. May the proclamation of your word equip the saints today and may the proclamation of Jesus Christ move our hearts in fear and reverence and worship in joy and in awe. And may the lost in the hearing of this message bow their knee before the sovereignty of Christ recognizing that in his death alone is hope for salvation. Because he rose again, he is the conquering champion over every enemy, especially our sin and the grave. And even, Lord, as we celebrate these things, we pray that you would encourage us to proclaim them to others. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Hallelujah. This morning, as we turn to the Scriptures, we're considering the record of God's faithfulness in the life of the patriarchs, especially Jacob, and by extension, Joseph and his sons. And this brings us to our Genesis series in Genesis chapter 48, the second half of the chapter. We will consider once again, and with a little more depth, the prayer of blessing over Ephraim and Manasseh in verses 15 and 16. That will cover most of our message, I trust, today. We'll have two other points, a little more briefly. One will be the preferences that we see. That would be the preferences of Jacob, Joseph, and, and God himself. And then also we'll look a bit at the prophecies of the future that we see in the blessing that Jacob then proceeds to declare over the rest of his children, particularly his sons, and the prophetic calling that they will have in the future of salvation's history in chapter 49. Today, our sermon title is Godly Heritage. Those of us who are getting up in years, and further along as I imagine even than myself, we have these thoughts of legacy, 
that we're probably consider more than those who are younger and don't have as big of families or as much responsibility. And the nearness of death is maybe less apparent to us in our early years for obvious reasons. But as we approach that day, we begin to think of different things, most self-conscious humans. What do I have to show for my life? And what do I have to pass on? These are thoughts that certainly troubled the heart of Jacob. And I'm sure in many ways we see by his own confession, he felt he came up short. We do find, though, that Jacob had an incredible heritage to pass on. In fact, in spite of himself, this is because God had given him promises bigger than him, promises that were yet to be fulfilled, promises that would come through the line of the Messiah. And it's to these things that Jacob points his family on his dying day. The aim of this morning's message is therefore to highlight the supernatural character of the patriarchal blessings in Genesis. That is, the revelation of God or the word of God contained in the last words of the forefathers of the faith, men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would you stand as you're able and let us consider the word of God this morning? Listen in your hearing as it is proclaimed. This is Genesis 48 through 49 two. Here is the word of God. And he blessed Joseph, saying, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Then Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim. It displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. 49.1 Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> There's an allusion perhaps to Genesis 33, 19 and 20 in 48:22. You notice that detail? I've given to your brothers one mountain slope. It reminds us, this was true of Abraham as well, that their claim to the promised land was pitifully small in their lifetime. Abraham owned a small plot of ground that he purchased from the Hittites, the cave in Machpelah. And as sort of a pitiful claim, we find that its primary use was as a burial ground for his wife at the time. Later, he is buried there. So is Isaac. And that cave in Machpelah awaits the bones of Jacob, will soon be transported to that little square, that plot of ground that he can claim as his own, a gravesite, a cemetery, if you will, for the uh, family, the covenant family. There's another little piece of ground 
<clears throat> relatively speaking, that Jacob bought in Shechem. And he probably refers to this, that mountain slope, something to pass along. But God had promised the whole land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and the sons, and so forth. So these little pieces are something of an escrow, or they're a down payment. They're a planted flag for a return in faith to the fullness of these promises. What these men realize through the course of their life is God's promises and purposes are bigger than their experience, a lesson we would do well to learn in our day. Most of us live for things and imagine the importance of our lives contained to the years in which we are alive. The patriarchs teach us to have a bigger view than this, a perspective multi-generationally that looks beyond our pitiful, narcissistic, self-absorbed experience that we often indulge ourselves with in the society in which we live to God's bigger plan and purposes in the kingdom of God. The Bible is written in this way. It assumes this perspective and it teaches us to value the same hard lessons that Jacob is learning, and we can learn from his uh, testimony as well. This modest piece of land, as a purchase secured by Jacob, no doubt represents a flag heralding a return, a stake, a claim to this land in future generations. And he's prophesying a day when this would happen. This one example, just easy, uh, an easily forgotten detail in the text, finds its significance in light of passages like ours today. We consider today the patriarchal blessing, patriarch, father, leader, the father, leader blessing, blessing given by Jacob in his last hours. These are his last words we're reading today. Passages like this, they're a document, uh, or they're, they document the revelation of God by way of prophecy and messianic anticipation. Uh, these moments are found in the life of the faithful forefathers of the covenant particularly at the end, when they are passing the baton, as so to speak, of God's promises to the next generation. I want to remind you of an illustration we used very early on in Genesis. Imagine a necklace, like a string or a chain, and then on that chain are jewels all the way around, perhaps a pearl necklace. The book of Genesis is something like that. The narrative or the account of the story is like a chain holding everything together, and then along the chain, you have these moments of particular significance. And I would highlight these as the history of God's plan of salvation shining brightly and, and becoming more clear. And as you see that string then together, we start to get a perspective of God's sovereignty through history, God's plan marching forward through time. And we get these moments of brilliance and clarity when we can see even a little farther down the road as Jacob's prophetic eyes are open to what God will do in the future. And so the book is kind of structured in this manner. These treasures of redemptive hope furthermore shine all the brighter against the backdrop of the weak and feeble Jacob, his aging body of 147 years about to step into the grave. Jacob at this time is weak, sick, and blind, almost a century and a half old. In light of these circumstances, it appears all the more obvious that his words and actions in these moments are by way of divine inspiration, not the arbitrary will of man. Jacob summons the strength to sit up in bed, and his eyes, though they can't physically see, light up with spiritual eyesight, and he boldly and clearly proclaims God's plan to the future. And what is his animating strength? It's not his own willpower. It's the Spirit of God. And these words are recorded 
as the revelation of God through this aging man. And like I say, that jewel on the chain of Genesis account shines all the brighter against this backdrop of the weak and aging Jacob. These are the last gasps of a dying man, yet they proclaim a future hope that will continue forever, forever, until all the elect and all the world is redeemed. And we are testimony ourselves, believers in this room, in the sound of my voice, to the power of these words of this dying man in his final days. Let me give you a heading, three points this morning, but one will cover most of our ground today and the two will serve to sort of set up future messages, I trust. So our heading is Acts of God and the Heritage of Jacob. So the purposes of God and what he accomplished, they shape the heritage of Jacob or how do they relate to it? We see that clearly in our text, and there are three perspectives I'd like to highlight. First and primary, the testimony of the past. The acts of God and the heritage of Jacob, now hindsight being more clear in his final days, is summarized so beautifully and so powerfully in verses 15 and 16. I think it deserves more attention than I've given it thus far. Secondly, we see the preferences of the present. That would be Jacob's, what he would prefer by way of, you know, the covenant blessing or the uh, inheritance continuing. There we have Joseph's preference also featured. And then against these, we have God's preference, teaching us that the things that, the natural order of things that we would typically acknowledge or, or uh, have as the way that we would like to organize things, God will often override for his mysterious purposes that show for that uh, become more clear in time. And this is true of how the lineage and the, the line of the Messiah will continue. And then finally, we have in chapter 49, prophecies of the future, which again, we'll touch on briefly as we have time. First of all, testimony of the past. In Genesis 48, 15 and 16, let me read these two verses a little more slowly and consider them in light of what we've learned of Jacob's life thus far in the text. And it's been about a third of Genesis or so dedicated to his testimony. And he blessed Joseph and said, let me just pause there and say, Jacob is blessing Joseph through blessing his sons. So this is the blessing. You see his, in your mind's eye, his hands crossed like this, preferring the younger, the right hand indicating the greater blessing, the left hand indicating the lesser, the left hand on Manasseh, the right hand on Ephraim. It's this extraordinary sense of God's will choose who he will to set his favor upon, uh, pictured in those cross arms. And then he proclaims this blessing over Joseph and Joseph's lineage and his two adopted sons now, Joseph's sons who he adopts in the ceremony as his own to carry forth the double portion of his uh, inheritance. And he says the following, listen, the God before whom my father's Uh, Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This blessing summarizes the testimony of Jacob's past. Verses 15 and 16, Jacob is blessing Joseph by way of his sons. This is the birthright blessing, and it's given in the context of Jacob's testimony as to the nature and the acts of God his whole life long. 
in four categories. We can see this. First, he is invoking this blessing in the name of the God of his fathers. That is, the God who has been faithful and has revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, now to him and now through him to his lineage, Joseph and the rest of his sons. Secondly, he is referring to the God who has revealed himself as Jacob's shepherd. He has shepherded Jacob his whole life long. Thirdly, he is referring, he is invoking this blessing in the name of the God who is a redeeming angel. We've touched upon these before. We're going to go in greater depth today, Lord willing. And finally, he is referring to, he's invoking a blessing in the name of God as prophet, the one who has revealed his purposes through this covenant line on into the future, including a worldwide multitude. This is the context of Jacob's blessing. So how many have been to a wedding before and there's a reception and a toast? You guys been to, and oftentimes it's an occasion for a little comic relief, right? So perhaps the best man gets up and he tells a funny story and then something meaningful. And now I want to toast the bride and the groom. He lifts a cup. And in spite of this solemn occasion, these kinds of things become many times just a passing formality. So we're familiar with some of these kind of blessings or toast or kind of an invoking a, you know, an, an affirmation on the ceremony and what's going on here. But this is not that. This is something far deeper. If we see this invoking of, uh, of a blessing in the text and fail to realize its depth, we might associate it with something more trivial in all co- our culture like a toast. But when we consider the shepherding grace in Jacob's life and his past, or we consider the legacy of what God has revealed to Abraham and Isaac that he bears as his greatest treasure. Remember, to Jacob, this inheritance was greater than all the wealth and prestige of Egypt. When he took Joseph's sons as his own and says, they will have my inheritance, Jacob, per our last message, was confessing, this inheritance is greater and more valuable and more precious and powerful than the pyramids and all of the influence that Egypt could boast. Ephraim and Manasseh were sons of an Egyptian prince. Inasmuch as Joseph had claimed to great authority, power, and riches, presumably, in, in Egypt, and might think of themselves, our dad has this position, let us benefit from it. We, will be, we can be important in Egypt. We're sons of a great second-in-command ruler. No, Jacob says, you will not have the privileges of Egypt as your identity. But no, I will call you out, adopt you as my own, and give you a greater blessing still. And what is this? The testimony of my plan and purposes for the salvation of mankind that will come by way of this covenant family. This is not a mere toast. This is an appeal to the God of his fathers that the patriarchal blessing, that that divine revelation, that father leader responsibility to pass along the word of God would be the greatest treasure of his sons. This, by the way, was inaugurated in Genesis 22. Would you turn there with me? Commentators have noted that before the word of God was written in hand, Moses, the author, after all, of Genesis, Exodus, the Pentateuch, and uh, those first five books, the word of God was primarily preserved and proclaimed through the testimony of the father leaders, the patriarch. During this time where God was revealing what he would do, he was giving his word in a unique way, by way of divine revelation to an agent who would bear that as his heritage and treasure and then pass it along to the next generation. Where did this begin? 
Well, you might point to Genesis 22. Here, Abraham has ascended Mount Moriah with his son in tow. Abraham and Isaac both are there. God has told him to sacrifice his son. Kids, does Abraham actually kill Isaac in this event? He does not, because what is provided? A lamb or a ram in the bush. In verse 12, we pick up on this story. He said, that is the angel, well, let me go to to 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, the angel of the Lord, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went, took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. These are incredibly significant moments. This is a substitute sacrifice that is standing in the place of a human that allows Isaac to escape the flame and the judgment. And this is a picture, of course, of a substitute that will come in the future. Abraham, therefore, called the name of the place, verse 14, the Lord will provide, as it is to this day. You see that phrase commonly throughout uh, Genesis, as it is to this day, meaning that this was a signpost, a memorial place, a monument to God's purposes that was remembered and acknowledged into the future. That's what these altar places, the purpose that they served. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Then again, the angel of the Lord speaks, 15. He called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, surely I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands, sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. This moment of the angel of the Lord, with this term, uh, you should add it to your vocabulary. I know we use it from time to time. It's not common, but remember it. Theophany is a revelation of the Lord in tangible form. It's the Lord revealed in ancient times, pre-incarnation, before Jesus came in the flesh, in a way that could be seen or heard or in some way perceived by the senses of theophany. Often the angel of the Lord is God himself appearing in a form to reveal himself and it signals an extremely important milestone in his purposes to save man through history. And this is one of those moments. And the message that the angel of the Lord brings is that your son, your only son, not withheld, the Lord will do a great work through this line and this family, blessing them, multiplying them as the sand on the seashore. This moment is not forgotten, but it is treasured, it is protected, and it is then given to the next generation. Isaac, his life is, car- or is shaped by this moment. Do you think you would ever forget that, kids? If your dad took you up a hill to sacrifice you? I mean... Think of how traumatic that moment would be. And suddenly you realize that you are the sacrifice. But then the Lord intervenes. A voice speaks from heaven. A great shining moment, as I imagine, of the angel of the Lord proclaiming that you are delivered, but a ram is provided. And that now, oh, I won't die? No, but in fact, you will grow into a great multitude. You would never forget that moment. Isaac himself grows weak and weary with age just like Jacob in our text today. And eventually, it has come time for him to die. 
and his physical eyes are failing as well. And there's some drama, of course, that ensues. But one thing is clear. The patriarchal blessing, it will be preserved and is proclaimed to the next generation. Genesis 28.1 Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him not to take a wife from the Canaanite women, to rise and go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and so forth. And verse 3, he passes on now to the next generation, the covenantal blessing. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. The patriarchal blessing, the father-leader, treasured heritage passed on to the next generation, was inaugurated by God himself, the angel of the Lord revealed to Abraham and Isaac on the hill of sacrifice. And by their testimony, particularly Isaac, it was then given to him as the Lord sent him out on his journey. He sent him on this journey, one man ill-equipped to wrestle with the, tri the uh, challenges and the perils of the wilderness. And if God did not shepherd Jacob, he would certainly be destroyed. But he had something precious to take with him on the way. What was it? Was it that jar of oil? Was it his wits and his ability? Was it his skills to survive in the wilderness? None of those things. All of those things would prove insufficient. What he had traveling with him was the Lord himself and the promise that he would fulfill this prophecy that his father passed on to him before he was sent away. We consider the significance of the gospel in this context. This was the early proclamation of salvation. It came by way of father benediction, blessing, at the end of life. Powerful. A covenant claim and promises that find their fullness in the work of Jesus Christ. We are to recognize the significance of these moments because these jewels on the chain, if you will, of Genesis helps us to appreciate the whole, to identify God's purposes, and then to see what he is doing in light of the big picture. Jacob's uh, blessing in verses 15 and 16 helps us to do this. So again, in our text today, when Jacob says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, that one phrase, that half of sentence we can understand has all of this weight behind it. It has the weight of sovereignly, divinely revealed message of prophecy and hope delivered by an emissary from glory, the very angel of the Lord, that this line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would grow fruitful in God's purposes to save all of humanity eventually by the coming Messiah. In chapter 49, almost in spite of himself, as I imagine, Jacob begins to prophesy of one of his sons, verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah, once again, not a very impressive guy. His life was full of sin and drama, especially at the beginning. Horrible dysfunction, horrible sin. Nevertheless, in spite of this, he receives a prophecy from his father in the next passage. Next chapter, verse 10. Listen, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Uh, Kids, what is a scepter? Does anyone know? It's a rod in the hand of a king. That's right. So scepter represents royal authority. There will be a kingly anointing, royal authority, that uh, there will be an office of sovereignty within the line of Judah, in the line of Judah, that will never end. Who is the son born of Judah? Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, as prophesied here, whose kingdom will never end? Shout it out if you know. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, kids? Who is that? Who is the king from David's line whose kingdom will never end? Jesus is correct. Thank you. So we see here that in Jacob's end of days confession, not only does he rely on the message that has come from the past, but God has inspired him to prophesy how it will be fulfilled in the future. Because the line of Judah will bear a king, a royal line to come, and a kingdom that will never end. Thus the prophecy, all the way back in chapter 22, that you will possess the gates of your enemies, and that royal authority would be vested in this line will come to pass. This is the God of Jacob's fathers. This is the prophecy that will continue from the line. This is the testimony of Jacob's past. And he sees it perhaps clearest of all when he is weakest physically. Now in light of God's purposes and God's promises that he has experienced in this 147-year journey, he proclaims them boldly and clearly so that his sons might carry them forward and be faithful to this vision. Secondly, Jacob has experienced God as shepherd. Genesis 48, again in verse 15. The God before whom my fathers walked, Abraham and Isaac. This God that Jacob, he delivers this benediction in the name of. This God has been his shepherd. He says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. We referenced that famous passage in in, Genesis. Psalm 23, written by David last sermon. And we noted here that David was not the first son of the covenant to proclaim the words or proclaim the idea, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jacob, long before him, proclaimed these words, and no doubt they inspired Jacob in his own song. Excuse me, David in his own song. Long before David wrote the Psalms, Jacob had confessed, The Lord has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. In what ways had God been Jacob's shepherd? It recently occurred to me in in my study of Genesis, particularly relating to Jacob, an answer to this question. Why is a third or more of the book of Genesis dedicated to Jacob alone or Jacob and his sons? It's an interesting question, is it not? Why is it more written of Abraham? Why is it more written of men who maybe were more spectacular and faithful in their character. Well, there is a perspective we glean from the account of Jacob that is unique, and it is this. Jacob was a hard sheep to shepherd, yet we see the testimony of God taking care of him through the course of his life and over a long journey. So the details and the record of Jacob's life and God preserving his will and purposes in spite of this weak and weary man is incredible. It, re- it reiterates to us as we read something of what Jacob summarizes here. God, who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, is amazing, is powerful, is gracious, is merciful, is sufficient. Because of Jacob's weakness, because of his frailties, 
both in his natural abilities and in his sin, the shepherding power of God is featured all the more. All the more we appreciate the work of God because Jacob, as I say, was a difficult sheep. Where are these times in the book of Jacob where we might look at the shepherding power of God? Well, they are profound. They come by way of promise. Let me just highlight a few. In chapter 28, in his great dream, we find this promise, verse 14. Your offspring, the Lord says, again shall be as the dust of the earth, shall spread abroad from the east and the west. At this time, Jacob is in exile from his homeland, and he's traveling all alone to this distant land of Paddan Aram. In spite of this, the Lord says in verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is the Lord's promise to Jacob at this time of danger and vulnerability. I will be your shepherd. We've come to call this the Emmanuel principle, or you could say Emmanuel promise. The kids reminded us last week that Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus, one of his names, in fact, is God with us. Because Jesus was born a man and took on our sin and therefore made a way for us to be reconciled to the Lord in Christ, God is with us. Long before Jesus came, there was a prophecy of Emmanuel that was illustrated in the faithfulness of God to Jacob in spite of Jacob's weakness and frailty in so many areas. And it was this promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you to keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. This is God as shepherd revealed to Jacob by way of promise. These recent chapters, or these chapters that we've covered in Jacob's life, might be viewed as a documentary of the Emmanuel principle. They're a record of how this promise came to pass in Jacob's life. It helps explain why a man with often less than impressive character is so widely featured. It's because the shepherding power of God is featured in the life of Jacob. 31, 42, another passage that comes to mind. If the God of my father, the God of, oh, excuse me. Let me uh, look here and double check my notes. 31, 3, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that is our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. It's been 14 years of tension with his father-in-law and his father-in-law's sons as he shepherded these flocks. Jacob, as a shepherd, uh, knows something of what it's like to tend sheep. He's done it for 14 years as an indentured servant to his father-in-law in exchange for the bride. He's tricked, you guys remember, into marrying Leah and then has to work extra long for the beloved bride, Rachel. After a long time and a lot of bad blood and animosity and conflict in this family arrangement, finally it's time for him to leave. He gathers his family and says, we're going back to the promised land. It's about time we do so. The angel of the Lord says to him in a dream, in fact, in verse 11, to do so. And God has promised him again during this time, in spite of all of this, cling to me. Return to the land of your fathers. I will be with you. Emmanuel, the Lord, will be his shepherd. So there's a shepherd, Jacob, with flocks and a large family leading them out of Paddan Aram. And then there's a shepherd, the Lord himself, leading the way 
through these dangers of many different kinds, family conflict, and then the dangers of the wilderness on the way, unknown enemies he might face in the land of his fathers, and yet God protects him. And this is the testimony of Jacob. When he again invokes this blessing over his sons and says, God who has been my shepherd, this is what he is referring to. More examples, 32 verses 1 and 2. Jacob is on his way and the angels of God meet him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place, Mayanahim. He sees at this point, supernaturally, beyond his physical existence or physical experience, to God fulfilling his promise to shepherd him by the hosts of heaven, the armies of angels that are encamped along him, alongside him on the way. So imagine receiving a commission as an angel in heaven. Hey, you need to travel with Jacob. And they're like, he goes so slow. And so the angel said, but the angel says, okay, nevertheless, we will go. So imagine if you could see into the spirit realm, there's angels just walking side by side with Jacob and his family, an army of heavenly hosts. And when Jacob would set up camp for the night, so they would set up camp for the night. And one time God opened his eyes to see them and, God, and uh, Jacob named the place literally two camps, Mayanam. It means the camp of the heavenly hosts and my camp. God had given him safe passage by dispatching an army emissary and ambassadors to follow him on his way back to keep him from harm and to prepare his way, to prepare his way to meet his future uh, or, or to, for a future meeting with his estranged brother Esau, God softening Esau's heart. Along the way, Jacob received, or Laban excuse me, receives a dream, whereas he would like to forcefully uh, bring Jacob back to his employ. The Lord says you better not do that. And so God provides in this way as well. This is God as Jacob's shepherd. 35.1. We continue to mark these moments. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So what is this? This is the commandment of the Lord, the revelation to Jacob, once again to return to Bethel, the place of covenant assurance. This is the house of God where Jacob first saw that heavenly stairway dream. So he says to his family, Let us arise, go up to Bethel, so we may make an altar to the God who has answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. You see, uh, Jacob is confessing to his family. We are obeying the Lord's voice. We're going to go back to the altar in Bethel and we're doing so because God is our shepherd. He has been with us, been with me in the day of my distress, no matter in the distri- what we face. And what they're facing right now is sin in the camp. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods, verse 4 that they had, and all the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. They dispatched, they disposed of, they threw them in the dump, so to speak, their idols, idols of the family. And the terror of God falls upon those who are around them so that they do not pursue the sons of Jacob. Once again, the Lord is his shepherd and prevents the enemies from destroying Jacob on this journey. And when he gets there, he once again worships the Lord and this step of repentance and patriarchal leadership, father-leader commitment. The Lord says to him, your name is Jacob, verse 10. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. He said, I am God Almighty, be fruitful, multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Another example 
of the Lord as Jacob's shepherd. So you see what he's guided him through thus far? Tricking his, his brother and inspiring the rage and vengeance of Esau. He has followed him through the wilderness, though he is ill-prepared to traverse across this land of Paddan Aram. He shepherded him through his poor relationship with his father Laban, and now through this great family sin of worship of idols in the camp. God has shepherded him through all of these circumstances. Why? Because God had promised the Emmanuel principle, I will be with you, leading you, guiding you, and directing you wherever you go. And if this wasn't clear enough, we see one more reference to this in Genesis 46.1. Jacob, now very old, and famine has struck the land. How will God shepherd us through this? Well, God reveals himself through his sons who have traveled to Egypt and then come back and then reveals himself to Jacob, particularly on the way, and says in 46.1, as Jacob is taking this journey, the Lord spoke to Israel, verse 2, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, this is the Lord, his shepherd, calling him in the night hour. And he, Jacob, said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make of you make a you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What is this? This is the promise once again. I am your shepherd. I will be with you. Emmanuel, God with you, Jacob, will go with you to Egypt and bring you up again. And now what are the perils he's facing? Travel as maybe 130 years old or something at the time. And this journey to a foreign land, hostile territory, probably in many ways. He doesn't know what he'll expect when he gets there. He's moving the whole family, 70-some people, all their flocks and herds. He has to be carried in a cart. He has to be escorted by his sons who are stronger than him. This is the last thing you'd like to do in your aging years is relocate to a place where you don't know the culture, the language, or anything really. And God carries him through and promises, I am your shepherd your son Joseph shall close your eyes. In other words, Joseph will oversee your burial. He will take care of you. I have given him that duty in your old age. And then in verse 49, we begin to read of how this has come to pass, 48, in our text today. This is the God of Jacob's fathers. This is the God as shepherd as Jacob has come to know him. Again, Jacob was a difficult sheep to shepherd. There were many times, so to speak, where there was a rash on Jacob's neck, not literally, but imagine the shepherd's crook, right? A shepherd has a staff with a hook on the end, and the sheep who are particularly rebellious, they might chafe on their neck some. And spiritually speaking, there was often a rash on Jacob's neck, as I imagine it. Why? Because he was a difficult sheep to shepherd. God would reach out in spite of Jacob with his crook and say, and pull him back from tricking his brothers and say, I will spare you in spite of what you've done. Pull him back from poor family leadership, allowing idolatry to infect and corrupt his home. Pull him back from the dangers of peril and sword that he uh, faced in these later years. Pull him back and pull him into his good graces and remind him. And now, perhaps spiritually stronger than ever, in his waning, with waning eyesight and a feeble body and sick and facing the grave, Jacob proclaims, with authority that God is his shepherd and will keep you, my sons. There's probably never a moment in Jacob's entire life where the authority and clarity of the word of God is as powerful as the words we read in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 48 and then the prophecies of chapter 49. 
because God in his faithfulness and patience with Jacob had been successful in shepherding him. Are you a hard sheep to shepherd? Are there times when your neck has chafed because in your rebellion, you have embraced idolatry. You've been a poor leader over the things that God has put you in charge of. You've allowed your flesh to get the best of you. You've been distracted and you've rambled off into brambles and, and, and the thicket at times in your life. I'm here to tell you to love the rod and staff that will guide and guard you in those times. You may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death of your own making. You may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death by virtue of other forces outside yourself. But the Lord is your shepherd and is sufficient to pull you through. Jacob's testimony reiterates that to us. As long as you are his daughter, as long as you are his son, his rod and staff will guide you. Stop chafing against it. Embrace it. How do you embrace it? Go to the story of Jacob and find what repentance looks like. Return to the altar, the place where God has reassured covenant, uh, uh, covenant promises, and, and then strive to be faithful to those. Turn from your idols and turn from the distractions and return to God's revelation. And the Lord will, uh, and, and cry out to the Lord what that looks like, and he will show you. God is a great shepherd, and he is the God of your forefathers, and he is your God if you know him today. So learn a lesson from Jacob and embrace his shepherding role and do not strive against it. Thirdly, redeeming angel. The testimony of Jacob's past shapes the context of the blessings that he gives his sons. When he prays over them, Ephraim and Manasseh, his adopted sons in this moment, bless, uh, blessings upon them, he does so in the name of of the God of his fathers, the name of the God who has been his shepherd, and the name of God as his redeeming angel. Perhaps the most striking testimony in the life of, J of Jacob is this revelation of God as a redeeming angel. Angel, the word most basically means messenger sent from God. It can be some of what we imagine angels to be, spiritual beings, emissaries of a different realm meant to carry out God's word, but it can also be a messenger, a theophany, if you will, like we said before, God revealed in the flesh or tangibly in some way to his people. In this sense, the greatest redeeming angel of all is Jesus, the messenger sent from God to come and to literally redeem, that is, pay the price that our sin deserved in order to buy us back from the clutches of death. Jacob understood that God was his redeeming angel. This a phrase is so incredibly powerful. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. We ask ourselves, what is Jacob's relationship with angels? Well, the answer to that question is deep and profound, and without time to turn to all the examples, recall in chapter 28, we're ministering angels, traversing the bridge between heaven and God's holiness, and the sinful Jacob come down to him to reveal to him the word and will of God. This was Jacob's relationship with angels introduced at Bethel when the heavens were seen open and he saw God's supernatural actions and purposes revealed and fulfilled to him in that these angels, these ministering servants, were attending his way. He saw these angels, of course, as we mentioned, uh, there at Maenaim, where two camps were there. And these angels had been dispatched by the Lord as messengers, a heavenly host encampment, in, 30, in, in uh, 32, verses 1 and 2. The dream messengers revealed to him in chapter 32, uh, uh, verse 30, again, 
that God was with him and would deliver him. But let me turn you to one particularly, particularly important moment where Jacob interacted with angels or an angel in chapter 35. Turn there with me if you would. Another significant moment in Jacob's life. This is incredible. <clears throat> So uh, here, uh, this may not be the right reference. I'll find it in a a moment here. Uh, 32, excuse me. So in chapter 32, here, this is that famous wrestling with God moment. So Jacob once again is on the run, yet God is his shepherd. And this is what happens to him in the night hour. Verse 22, the same night he arose and took his two wives, two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. So Jacob is left alone, verse 24. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he, the angel, said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Again, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Whereas the name of this man whom Jacob wrestled with that night remained a mystery to him, one thing was certain. Something significant had happened. He saw the face of God and yet was allowed to live. How is that possible? You as a sinner, without your sins atoned for, would you be able to step into the presence of God and live? The lesson of Mount Sinai says, absolutely not. The unatoned for people stand at a great distance from the revelation of the Lord and only only his anointed messenger is able to withstand the presence of God. And it is not until the atoning blood is sprinkled upon the people of God that they can enter into some degree of God's presence and live. It is not until the atoning blood is spread upon those who do not deserve to be in God's presence that they can enter. The high priest and the priestly order taught us this. And for us, it is not until the blood of Jesus washes away our sins that we can enter into God's presence and live. The opening of this sermon, I prayed a prayer along the lines of the great judgment day. There is a great judgment day, a day of reckoning at every man's death, every person's death, where they will stand before the presence of God. And the only way to live, that is to survive and to remain in his favor and to enter into sweet reconciliation and fellowship is if their sins are atoned for. Jacob did not know the name of this man, Jesus himself, as I suspect. But one thing he did know, he must be a redeeming angel. Otherwise, there is no way he could be in the presence of God himself and live. This angel somehow is key to my redemption. Somehow my sins are atoned for. Somehow my unworthiness has been dealt with. Somehow I have received the favor of God. I have been redeemed. My sins have been paid for. I am no longer under the wrath and judgment of God, but I am his. He has washed my sins away. Jacob knew God, understood him as his redeeming angel. Angel in that there was a messenger sent, dispatched to him, particularly to address his cause. Redeeming in that unless his heart was changed and sins were covered, there is no way 
that he could see God face to face and not be judged and destroyed and burned instantly at that encounter. This happened at Peniel, where he saw God and understood him as his redeeming angel. He saw the presence of God and he lived. Who is your redeeming angel? Well, of course, the fulfillment of this is Jesus Christ himself. He is the messenger sent from God. The one who said to Nathan himself, the fulfillment of Jacob's dream was, would, came to pass in him. From now on, he says to the disciple, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That is, Jesus pointed out to those with eyes to see and ears to hear, I am the redeeming angel. I am the reason that Jacob could see me face to face and live. And I am the only one who will allow you to see God face to face and live. Submit and surrender to me, my blood, Jesus says, will is sufficient to cover you and to deliver you into his good graces forever. And at that covenant renewal moment in chapter 35, after the Lord reveals himself to Jacob and speaks to him again, it says he went up from him. Again, a small detail in the text, extremely profound. This is an ascension moment. In order for someone to ascend, he must first condescend. Here again, I submit, Jacob experienced God as the redeeming angel. In some way, the presence of God came down to Jacob and spoke to him and then ascended, anticipating the very thing that Jesus would do, come down, take on flesh, bear our sins and atone for them. And then upon that completed work of redemption, ascend to the Father taking with him one day all who have been saved by his redeeming angelic work, if you will, the messenger sent one who covers our sin. Finally, Jacob understands God as prophet, and we'll close with this. In chapter 48, he says, he invokes the name of the one who was the God of his fathers, the God who has been his shepherd all his life long to this day, and the angel who has redeemed him. He goes on in his blessing to say, from all evil, redeem me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Where does Jacob get this idea of a too many to count um, uh, lineage that will one day fulfill the promises of God? Well, he knows it because God has prophesied the same, and we read of these. This is a revelation to the covenant family in Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac receiving that promise from the angel of the Lord himself that a great multitude would be born from them. And this is reiterated in that moment we just referenced in chapter 35, where God says a kingly line will arise and as many as he had said to Abraham, the sands on the sea and the stars in the heaven, a mount of children, will be yours to boast in the future. A worldwide multitude blessing was proclaimed to Jacob. So Jacob, inspired by the Lord to proclaim this truth to his sons in his dying benediction, announces to them the blessing of bearing the name is not empty, but it is powerful. And instead of a statement, or instead of uh, an inheritance by way of material gain, Jacob proclaims to, the, to them something greater. His faith and conviction upon the testimony of God's word that someday, somehow, through the line of his sons, a great multitude 
would arise. These are the promises that Jacob has to pass on to his sons. This is the valuable inheritance that he has to give to the next generation. He says even of Ephraim and Manasseh in verse 20, one day people will say of them, by you Israel will pronounce a blessing saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. In other words, there will come a day where Ephraim and Manasseh, their people will grow into such a great, powerful number that people will say, may the Lord bless you as he's blessed the sons of Joseph, the sons of Jacob. May the Lord bless you as he has blessed the line of the Messiah. This would be hard to believe at the moment. Again, refugees in a land with an aging patriarch at the mercy of the Pharaoh under the instruction or under the safekeeping of Joseph in a land of Goshen, not their own. But there would come a day because God had prophesied it and Jacob knew God's word to be sound that these circumstances would change and that in his sons and in his son's sons, the fulfillment of God's purposes would be realized. And eventually through them, Jacob, alive and well, his testimony in his sons would return in, so to speak, to the land of promise. This is the testimony of Jacob's past. He has understood and thus proclaims God as the God of his fathers, as his shepherd, as his redeeming angel, and as the prophet. Now, in a further message, we'll pause it there. This is not necessarily according to the preferences of Jacob or Joseph, but this is God's will in spite of them that he is unfolding here. Joseph has said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. Joseph would like the natural order, thing, natural order of things to be recognized, that the greater blessing would go to Ephraim, uh, or to go to Manasseh instead of Ephraim, because Manasseh was the firstborn. God had different ideas. Think of your own story. Think of your own salvation. Are you the unlikely chosen one? Are you the one least likely to be called out from wickedness and to be embraced? Now, every true believer understands and can relate to this sentiment. God, in his mysterious grace, calls to himself an elect. We don't know exactly why, other than for his glory, he chooses those he chooses. We can relate to the story of Israel all through the ages, but it wasn't because they were powerful and many in number that God set his love and favor upon them. But instead, in the mystery and the counsel of his will, he sought to glorify himself by blessing the unlikely lost sheep. The one who has, been, uh, given, has disqualified himself in his own sin when he finally submits and surrenders to Jesus Christ as his redeeming angel, recognizing that God in his mercy has kept him alive and shepherded him his whole life long, cries out, just like Jacob does here, and worship and a proclamation of the truth. God is my Lord. He is my shepherd. I follow him because he first loved me. This is a message that we can take away as individual believers of the testimony of Jacob. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of the scriptures, which reveal to us the beauties of our salvation. I pray that you would use the proclamation of your word and so far as it has been rightly divided to give us a deeper commitment, a richer understanding a bolder proclamation of the truth. As we close our time in worship, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased by this small offering we have to, to bring, the testimony of our praise and thanks for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, our redeeming angel. In his name we pray, amen.